Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Uh, welcome to the pilot episode of the Great War Channel Patreon podcast. Uh, a podcast that is exclusive for all the people that support us on Patreon. Uh, I think we will probably make the first episodes available to everybody so that everybody can have an idea what they're getting into if they're supporting us on Patreon. Give them a little teaser. Yeah, uh, the general idea is that in this podcast episode, which probably will come out once a month, we, meaning me and Jesse, talk about the history of the month, the history topic of the month. Um, for example, in this month, our first episode, the topics were uh, the German revolutions, so to speak, uh, the what was going on in Eastern and Central Europe, the revolutionary roundup and the challenges of demobilizing a massive army after a total war. Uh, and we will also use the podcast to talk a bit about um, things that are happening behind the scenes. Um, we will also in the future take questions, feedback from the viewers. Um, and we thought, why are we doing this? That this is um, a much better way to get in regular frequent contact with our Patreons than writing like a long blog post or newsletter. I think this has a bit more character to it. And we are always happy about feedback. If you have any ideas for segments that we should do, you know, just write them in the comments to this uh, post on Patreon. Uh, one final thing is that in the future we will also try whenever possible to have some experts on the show and we will ask them questions from you as well. And without further ado, let's jump right in. So topics of the month were particularly interesting to me and probably, pardon my French, a clusterfuck to research for you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I know that word in French actually. Uh, I've come across it before. Yeah, it was a challenge to research the January uprising as the first topic because it doesn't really get a lot of press, historical press, so to speak, outside of Germany. And so I hadn't really worked with that topic a lot before. It's also a very political topic, so that kind of, you need to sort of weed out uh, which sources you're going to trust and consult and take a bit of care about how you, um, how you kind of present the situation and explain what's going on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think you did a very good job on that. I Why, hope, thank you. I hope our Patreon supporters and all our viewers agree with that. Um, for me personally, this was a very interesting topic to start with. Um, I mean, you said it has a bit of coverage in Germany, but it's like, I would say maybe here in Berlin it gets a bit of coverage because a lot of the action happened here in Berlin, but it's not such a major thing when I go back and remember my history lessons or anything. So for me, oh was, no, that's true. For me, it was very interesting to learn about a lot about these things and uh, actually to find out about things that happened right out, outside my door. I live in uh, Berlin, uh, Charlottenburg, which is uh, West Berlin district, and the, for example, the Hotel Eden or the flat where Liebknecht and Luxembourg uh, were hiding out after the uprising failed. That's like a five-minute bike ride from my door. Uh, and I always like to find out these kind of little tidbits uh, about you know, my local history, so to speak. Yeah, that's always cool. I, I lived in Berlin for a year and 
never really got a sense of where these historic locations were, even though I was interested in the history of the city and it wasn't really on the, on the top of anybody's radar, so to speak. Yeah, and um, so we went through uh, a lot of the research you did for the, for the episode and, you know, some drafts of the scripts and everything. And um, there are so many details and crazy, uh, completely coincidental events happening. And we had to leave out, um, we tried to include a lot of them, but we also had to leave out uh, a few of them. Do you have any highlights or any things that, that, that you uh, like to maybe give a glimpse of uh, for our listeners? Well, I think one thing that sort of struck me as I sometimes struggled with trying to make the story make sense and structure it in a way that would be sort of logical for someone who was learning about it for maybe the first time is just how much the chaos played a role on the ground as well as in me trying to tell the story. So it's almost like when you try to tell the story, it, it really sort of reflects uh, that atmosphere at the time. I'm, I think, especially coming from the so-called West, like I do, the war just ends on November 11th. Yes, we sort of hear vague echoes of, yeah, there was still things happening in Russia, but I think, um, for most of us, we, we really just have no clue about the absolutely chaotic and deadly years that followed the war in Eastern and, and Central Europe. And this is just one little example of that. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of what uh, one of the things that I took away uh, from it. And um, do you have any uh, small details that uh, we didn't include in the show that, uh, that, that are interesting? Yeah, there are lots. I mean, in particular, I thought it was interesting how people, how some of the characters reacted in, in these sort of situations and how it shows it's really hard to look back at history and really say, yeah, this group of people had this goal and this is why they were doing that. If you think about that group of revolutionaries sort of hunkered down in the Feuerwehr's newspaper office, uh, Mark Jones's book in particular talks a lot about this. They didn't plan to do what they did, right? So they're sitting there discussing, well, what do we do now? We kind of have an opportunity. And rumors coming in about troops on the march, revolutionary troops coming to Berlin from outside, the Navy division is about to rise up and join the Spartacists. This type of rumor was just flying around and they had no way in their little world in that building to know what was true and what wasn't. And therefore they kind of projected their hopes onto the situation. And that's something that um, I reflected on a lot when I was, when I was reading about it. Uh, maybe one other little thing that I thought was uh, cool from, from straight from the beginning was this figure of Gustav Noske, right? The, the social democrat minister responsible for the army and navy and how he approached the situation. It's a little bit dramatic, but there are actually quotes from him saying, well, somebody's got to be the bloodhound, the Bluthund in German in this situation, and I'm not going to be shy about it. 
So he, along with some others in the government, these guys were like lifelong socialists, right? Fighting against the imperial German system from within the, the democratic process, now turned to solutions that maybe in the past they wouldn't have thought possible for them to actually do. Yeah, that's, that's for me the, the main takeaways. I mean, if I look at this whole situation in Berlin, uh, but I mean, to be fair, there's also other examples like in Bremen, for example, and in some other major cities. I mean, yeah. it wasn't just only isolated in Berlin, but Berlin is the most famous since it was the, since it was the capital, biggest city at the time. Uh, what I found fascinating is um, this kind of feeling of the power vacuum and how these kind of different groups of people dealt with it. For example, just a, ver a very minor player that we just very briefly mention uh, is the Wilmersdorfer Bürgerwehr, basically the, the local militia in the district of Wilmersdorf that um, got a tip uh, from one of the citizens that lived in the same building where Luxembourg and Liebknecht uh, hide it out and everything. And for me, it was just this um, image of, you know, some local guys that usually uh, in, your, in a peaceful time before the war probably sat in a corner pub in Berlin. We have a lot of these and uh, we you know we're just minding their own business. But now they are like in this power vacuum and uh, completely new republic. Kaiser is gone. Uh, people with uh, military weapons on the streets, uh, lots of demonstrations, uh, British blockade still going on, hunger, whatever, and this kind of situation. And they're like, okay, fuck it, we're the, we're the Wilmersdorf militia now. And uh, this is going, you know, that's what we're going to bring order to our little few blocks of whatever and everything. And I found that uh, uh, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the idea of order. Once disorder comes, it's almost like all the normal rules of society go out the window, right? And this, um, this you can sense when you're, when you're getting to grips with what was actually going on there. And one other aspect that I thought interesting that also didn't really make it into the episode was just how, just how much of a strain of anti-foreigner rhetoric was a part of the government's tactic to discredit the revolutionaries and kind of consolidate their control over the situation. Uh, now Luxembourg was born in the Russian Empire, in the Polish-speaking part of the Russian Empire, but she had immigrated to Switzerland and then came to Germany, married a German and had become a German citizen by the time that these events uh, took place in 1919. But uh, Philipp Scheidemann, one of the social democratic politicians who gave um, a speech that we partially quote from in the episode, emphasized that she was, well, he, he called her a Russian. And so even though there's a very difficult label to put on her because you know, she came from what would later become Poland. Generally, that part of the Russian Empire didn't get along with the center. Uh, she was Jewish, and generally speaking, the Jewish community in Russia didn't always have an easy time of it, and that's an understatement within the, uh, in the Russian uh, Tsarist regime. So um, it's just an easy out to make that, for the government, to make that connection and label her, aha, she's a Russian, and look what's happening in Russia, we don't want that, and use that as a sort of implicit justification for, for well, essential, essentially extrajudiciary executions. Uh, speaking about 
uh, east of Germany at that time. Uh, we had this uh, other segment in the episode, the uh, basically arc of chaos that yeah. uh, that went from basically Finland uh, all the way to Anatolia and even further to the Middle East and everything. Was there anything uh, particular that you found interesting there? I mean, speaking about unknown parts of history for most of the Western world, I mean, I know a bit about revolutionary things in Germany because the Weimar Republic is quite important for us, of course. But when it goes even further east uh, at the time, it gets very, very, I get very, very um, little information and I know very, very little about that. So um, did you find anything interesting there? Well, lots. I mean, sometimes it's hard to sort of wade through the layers of historical interpretation that have come since then. Because once all those empires broke up, uh, the states that come afterwards, they want to do like any country does and write their own history and interpret it in a particular way that shows, you know, this happened because we were supposed to make our own country and so on. And that's not necessarily an invalid way of interpreting history, but it's not the only way. And it doesn't necessarily cover all aspects of the picture. Um, and so that kept kind of cropping up to my mind. When you think about what's happening in Russia, for example, there are so many different factions and parts of factions, and you have anarchists, then you have some different groups of uh, people claiming to be the rightful founders of a new Ukraine, for example. We only mentioned one in the, uh, in the roundup, the People's Republic, but there were others. And they all have different colors. Yeah. Yes, of course, uh, to make it at least maybe a little bit less confusing if you successfully associate the right color with the right group. Um, but the other kind of interesting case is about Poland because Poland, or what became Poland after World War I, was actually the territories of the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the German Empire. So there were Poles now collecting together on this Polish-speaking territory, or mostly Polish-speaking territory, who had grown up in different systems and fought even in three different armies on two sides. Sometimes against each other. Yes, sometimes against each other, and sometimes switch sides in the middle of things when there was the opportunity to do that. So the crystallization of the Polish state is a really complex thing. It's not, it doesn't follow a sort of simple, well, everybody was thinking the same way and wants to organize the country in the same way. I mean, they were, at one point, they were fighting on four different fronts against the Bolsheviks in the east, against the Czechs, which we briefly mentioned in the, in the roundup, against the Germans, and then also uh, to their north against the Lithuanians. So just the level of chaos is really uh, something that we, we don't get in, in Europe and North America or Western Europe and North America very often. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, and the third topic, which I also find very interesting uh, for a variety of reasons, was uh, the demobilization that we talked about. Um, that's interesting enough, one of the questions that we get, I think, basically since we started the channel, when we were still covering the main events of World War I, was like, it's like these very practical questions that, that people have, which I think also make history very relatable. It's like, who cleaned up 
when they went yeah. home. So, and before you can even ask the questions who cleaned up, which is, I think, probably your whole other topic is, how do you get all these people and all this material home in the first place? I mean, the Entente, uh, they built up these huge logistics networks and everything, but these were built to bring stuff to the front, not necessarily to all of a sudden bring everybody back at the same time. And that doesn't even touch the question about, you know, how the soldiers felt about that, uh, who gets to get home first. Uh, we talked about the treatment of uh, prisoners uh, and how they were viewed and everything. I found that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I did too when I when I ended up uh, delving into it, and it's especially. I mean, of course, of course, it's interesting in in the West, right? With Great Britain and France, they have millions of men under arms, and how do you balance an, a sort of orderly sending home of, of all those people? But how do you balance that with your national interest, which is to be able to impose the peace that you want? when your army is essentially melting away because your citizens wanted to, right? So it, it made it real difficult for the British and French to do as much as they wanted to do in Eastern and Central Europe and especially the Middle East, even though, of course, they would basically recreate the Middle East. Uh, we'll get to that on a, on a future episode in more detail. But... The, a few of the sort of examples that stick out the most for me are, are from Eastern Europe because in the midst of this chaos, people banded together to defend each other but also to exercise violence without any consequences. So there I think of an organization like the Freikorps. Now we talked about them in the episode more in terms of their involvement in the, in the uh, Spartacist uprising. But later on in the show, I'm sure we'll be able to pay a little bit more attention to what they did after that, which was even crazier. I mean, they went and intervened in different wars in the Baltics, for example, and they don't represent a state. They just represent a bunch of armed people with ideas, or even if those ideas are just, I want to keep fighting because fighting is what I'm supposed to do, uh, influencing what's going on in other parts of the world. Like the Czech Legion is another famous example. I mean, you have all these Czech guys. They're from the Austro-Hungarian army. They're taken prisoner. They're off in Siberia. Chaos, revolution breaks out. And all of a sudden, you have this little self-contained army of 50,000 people. And they're armored train. I was just going to say, riding an armored train through chaos, deciding what happens in their region, wherever they happen to be. It's like nothing we can imagine uh, these days. Those of us lucky to come from, lucky enough to come from more or less stable uh, countries. Uh, yeah, one one more thing that I think we will we will probably also talk maybe about in the next episode is of course that some of the soldiers of the Entente powers they actually weren't able to go home. They went into Germany, not in the glorious 1919 offensive that, for example, John J. Pershing wanted, but uh, as an, uh, during the occupation of the Rhineland. Yeah. Uh, and everything. So some uh, the American and French troops, you know, went there, and what they did there, we will find out. But you know, that's of course, f if you think about it. I mean, I think they mainly put the new guys uh, into these occupational forces. But of course, knowing that the war is technically over and you have to stay in enemy in your enemy's territory, of course, uh, also creates a very different situation. And of course, it was also. Uh, 
uncomfortable situation for the German citizens that live there because uh, I already saw a few pictures and a few, saw a few reports about that, you know, the French soldiers definitely had a grievance. Well, the French in particular, given what, uh, what France had suffered uh, during the war. But yeah, the, there's also an emotional aspect to that in some ways, in terms of reintegrating those soldiers afterwards into society and culture and a feeling of belonging, because not all the soldiers came home, well, from the victorious powers, came home to a hero's welcome. Some were just shipped off to either occupy the Rhineland or to colonial new colonies in the Middle East, or they were sort of stuck in Russia with the intervention forces, not really sure how that was going to end, what the point of it was. So that also contributed sometimes for a difficult emotional reintegration into society when you, you don't get what you feel you deserve as in terms of a welcome and, and appreciation coming back home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a related topic to the history we just talked about that our listeners and our viewers are probably interested is you. Tell us a bit more about you. Um, you briefly touched upon that you have been a battlefield guide, but you did a lot of other things related to history. And uh, I think our listeners would be keen to hear about that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, history has been, uh, I guess, a bit of a love affair of mine from the time when I was pretty young. Um, I, I suppose you could say I was a history nerd from probably the age of 10 or 12, pre-internet days. I remember reading all about World War I and II in our old printed encyclopedia that we had at home. And then that's why, that's more or less why I decided to start studying history along with my grandfather's war stories that, that he would tell. He was a Canadian infantryman in, in World War II. So I ended up getting a bachelor's in history and I worked for a bunch of different museums in Canada. And one of the coolest uh, museums I worked at is a museum of the Cold War and it's in a converted former nuclear bunker that was originally meant to protect the Canadian government if there'd ever been a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. So, oh, really cool. yeah, I got to walk down a blast tunnel every day and we designed all sorts of cool exhibits um, about the building and about plans for dealing with the nuclear war, which of course made me appreciate a lot more that we never had one. Um, and in between, I also worked uh, in France as a tour guide for some of the battlefields on the Western Front. And that gave me a chance to start traveling and seeing other parts of the old front lines as well, in Italy or Eastern Europe or the Middle East. So I tried to, over the years, uh, feed that interest, even when I had other jobs later that weren't as closely related to, uh, to history. Oh, yeah. So it makes total sense that you jumped the gun and uh, told me that you want, want a job. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was really... It was a sort of, I was sitting there alone at home, you know, procrastinating with something I should have probably been doing and figured I, I'd watch uh, a Great War episode before the whole channel shut down. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there in the chair saying, yeah, we were looking for a new host. And I thought, man, I'd better, I got nothing to lose. I may as well just get my hat, throw my hat in the ring uh, as soon as I can. You never know. And so I, I ended up... Uh, booking some time at a little media studio and with the help of uh, 
of a friend of mine, shout out to Julia, by the way, uh, we were able to kind of shoot a little pitch video that uh, I hope anyway uh, kind of did the trick and helped me land in this chair in this studio. It certainly did. I think we will put a few scenes of that in your small introduction video as well. I'm sure I'll regret shooting that video at some point, but what can you do? It's a uh, compromat uh, now. <laughs> Once it's on the internet, it never goes away, right? You've got to roll your dice. And uh, I mean, related to your application and the whole process that basically started on November 12th, uh, 2018, uh, maybe that's interesting for our listeners to hear is, um, you know, how that went behind the scenes. Uh, I can tell you as of now, uh, beginning of February 2019, uh, me and Tony uh, own our own production company. Uh, it's called Real Time History, or the legal name is RTH Real Time History. Um, one of the things that we learned in German bureaucracy is that there is naming conventions for how to name your company. And a whole lot of other things we learned. Uh, we basically went through all nine layers of hell. Uh, of German bureaucracy for uh, setting up this company, which um, you know is fine because it was our dream. Uh, it was something that we have uh, had thought about for a while, even uh, when the Great War was still going on, that we want to produce our own content. And um, when we got the offer from MediaCraft, the company that employed us uh, before, um, or we didn't get the offer from them, we told them, "Hey, are you guys interested?" Uh, we are going to set up our own production company. Can we do something with the Great War Channel? Because we know they don't have any production people here anymore. And um, I mean, frankly, this whole History Channel project that they started in 2014 didn't really fit the current company that it is now anymore. And they said, hey, yeah, sure, why not? Um, so we came to an agreement. Um, I mean, they still own the brand. Uh, so they get a cut from us, from, from our income. Uh, but we can you know, pr still produce content for the people. And that was like the very cool opportunity to finally make this production company uh, a thing and to um, basically take a leap of faith and, um, well, get into the self-employment business. And uh, here we are now. Um, it wasn't really ideal that um, there was like this eight week or so break between the episodes. Um, I but I hope now in the end that people understand that this kind of stuff takes time, not only because of the bureaucracy, but I mean we needed to talk, uh, you know, to applicants. I mean, uh, like you, uh, that wanted to host the show. Uh, we wanted to, um, you know, basically digest a lot of the ideas that we uh, already had over the past years that, you know, what kind of things we want to change. One of the things that changed very quickly was uh, that we um, were a bit tired of the three videos a week kind of idea. And that's why we have longer videos less frequently now, which suits our um, strife for historical accuracy and details a bit more. And uh, we changed the design of the show. We uh, came up with new ideas for Patreon, kind of new ideas how to use this kind of podcast, and so on and so on. So it was a, on the one hand, very mundane process of bureaucracy, but on the other hand, also a lot of brainstorming. And now we are finally back at producing. We're sitting in the studio right now and everything. I can say it was worth it already uh, but, but for a while you weren't sure for, for a while uh, uh, the darker my eyeshadows got uh, you know there was some there was certainly some doubt in between 
and uh, yeah, but um, we, were, we were very happy that we can finally start doing that now. I mean, of course, behind the scenes, I we have the pleasure now to do a lot of uh, bureaucracy still, you know, accounting, that kind of stuff, you know, running a company is no small feat, but uh, we hope and we're very confident that now the actual production of content is, you know, the majority of our work time again. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe the Great War will not stay our only project uh, this year. Ooh, that sounds like a teaser. I cannot confirm or deny that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so I think we can wrap it up here, here now. That was the first pilot episode of the Great War Channel Patreon podcast. Uh, maybe we can also find a sexier name for that in the future. Uh, as I said in the beginning, uh, you can ask us questions um, relating to the history or relating to us or the production uh, in the comments here on Patreon. You can always drop us a message. Uh, you can write us feedback to the podcast in general and we will hear you in about a month again. We will record these when we are in the studio together and we will see you on YouTube uh, when we publish our new next episodes. Looking forward to it. Bye. Bye.